Do you want the music? We can play the music. It's up to you. Let's play the music. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and the governor keeps saying it, but it really is the new normal. Joining me today is Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. This will be exciting because we just planned what we're going to say about three minutes ago. Scott was tied up at work and couldn't join us. My camera is on the fritz as we record. Who knows? <laughs> <It's> Friday. <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? It is Friday. What a wild week in the life of Oklahoma politics. So we're going to talk about state question 807, state question 810, mask mandates, tribal agreements, PPP loan data, and maybe let's start with the big news of the week so far. Governor Stitt has COVID. And this is not what he intended when he said being a top 10 state. He's the first governor in the nation to contract COVID-19. Yeah, that we know of. I, I like that he said he was shocked that he was the that he got it. He's the first one. And then the sentiment on Twitter was like, you are the only one that's shocked by this, my friend. Like, we all were kind of waiting for it. So he, you know, I had a big uh, a tweet thread that I don't know if we're still saying things go viral these days, but it was one of my widely most shared. widely shared, indeed. Um, after his press conference, and I, I wasn't trying to take any shots at him, but I wanted to clarify a few things. Number one, he said, and apparently keeps saying, that he is asymptomatic, but he's also saying he has symptoms. He's been saying he had body aches. He's like, I only have body aches. I'm asymptomatic. And I was like, you have a symptom. That means you are symptomatic. That's the definition of symptomatic is having symptoms. I just don't want people to think like, oh, it's only a little fever. It's only a little body aches. It's not that bad. That means That's you, an indicator. That's an indicator. You should get tested and you should stay home. I mean, you should go get tested and then you should quarantine. Regardless of COVID, like even if it's five years from now, we get this all wrapped up, we're all vaccinated, and you have body aches and a fever and you kind of feel crummy, stay home, right? You've got a cold or the flu. That's how we stop the spread of any of these diseases, regardless. So anyway, um, that was a, a very odd, that, that morning, I don't know about you, but that morning I started getting texts from people that are all like, everyone saying, a high level official, you know, has COVID. Do you think it's the governor? I was like, I don't I don't know. The Lost Ogle tweeted about it. My wife texted me because her boss said that she had heard from somebody. And I was like, it is nine o'clock in the morning, people. Uh, turns out, I guess word had gotten out. They were all very correct. And all eyes were on Oklahoma for the usual on things that aren't necessarily favorable. Mm -hmm. And so I was just talking to my aunt on the phone a few minutes ago who says that she saw the coverage of Governor Stitt on TV and she lives in Louisiana. So um, everyone was talking about how one of our highest rank, our highest ranking officials in the state um, has practiced this. And we've seen the governor at a lot of places. And so there's photographs going around of the governor at Walmart. Um, we saw him at the Trump rally in Tulsa where he was around um, the entire Oklahoma congressional delegation minus uh, Congressman Lucas and Congresswoman Horn. Uh, so it was 
I'm not gonna say inevitable, but it, it, like you said, it wasn't surprising to a lot of people that he's been in a lot of places, in public places without a mask, because yeah. that's how a lot of people are contracting COVID in these different places with crowds. Right, and now like, Last I saw, four members of his security detail were on quarantine because they had all had been tested positive as well. Thus, and there far, was a restaurant that had to close down because he ate at that restaurant within, yeah, you know, the past few days. Right, and and just to dispel the rumors, based on the timeline, he likely did not contract it at the Trump rally because that was a month ago, and generally symptoms will show up in you know, uh, five days or maybe a week or two, and so it's outside that time frame now he could have got it from someone who got it at the rally like that's possible um but also i mean we've seen like just the spread of the disease right 46 states 48 states have increasing numbers of cases and this is all directly related to first um, memorial day weekend right a bunch of there's a big we two weeks after that we saw an increase and that increase just kept going and then really um, 4th of July was, you know, roughly two weeks ago today, right? And so we've seen all these cases that were likely from, you know, parties, right? Barbecues, people had the day off, they went to the bar, they hung out with friends. And like, if you and go people somewhere... are intentionally hanging out now as a way to protest mass, right? Right. So we're seeing a lot of people intentionally going around other people without a mask on, because they believe it's an infringement of their freedom to tell them to wear one. Which, you know, you and I were joking before we started recording that this kind of these kind of protests and contrarianism, if that's a word, happened when seatbelts started being required too, right? Um, but now we take it for granted. Now, not everyone wears their seatbelt, right? Um, but if you don't wear a seatbelt and you're in an accident, it doesn't injure the other person, right? But with COVID, it does. And you know, I saw someone today, I need a tweet about this, but I saw someone today take their mask off so they could sneeze and they sneezed into their elbow, which is what you're supposed to do. And I was like, okay, the whole point of sneezing into your elbow, right, that we've all been taught by our moms and our teachers and everybody else is to limit the spread of droplets of your saliva, right, so that you don't spread a potential virus. Like that's the whole the whole idea of that. And we've got that down. And I'm sure that, you know, the idea of sneezing into their mask, they didn't want to have a bunch of snot in their face or whatever. And it's just like a new thing. But it just, I, they were fortunately like in the parking lot at Lowe's and away from everybody. But it occurred to me that like, that's why we wear masks. Like the best thing they could have done is keep their mask on, sneeze into it and then go change their mask or whatever. Like, um, but that's, it just highlighted like we, we, many people in our society have not really made the connection about why we wear masks, right? And it's it, a change in culture. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a new behavior we're asking people to adopt. And there's already a distrust of the science. <laughs> yeah. And so we're also asking people, hey, do this new thing because it protects other people. And so it is an adjustment for a lot of folks to, to get used to you got to cough, keep that mask on. <laughs> right, right. Take your mask off and cough into the air. So, yeah, I, I, it's hard. Like the whole thing sucks, right? I have a member of my family that, you know, is like, I'm over it. Like I'm just done. I was like, 
I get it. But you, yeah, I mean, I have not seen my friend. I see you and Scott on the computer screen weekly, and it is the highlight of my week, except for my baby. I see her every day. She's wonderful. But, like, aside from that, I haven't seen Scott in person um, in months because he's a physician. He's around people all the time. Like, that's crazy. Um, I was like, I love you, but I'm not going to hang out with you right now on the chance that it's, he's a carrier, right? Like, I have I have one friend and I've hung out, we've hung out twice and we sat on my porch, which is about 10 feet wide and we wore masks and just sat on opposite ends of the, of the porch, right? And it's outdoors and there's a good breeze and that's literally it, right? Like, I mean, I've, yeah, I see my mother-in-law because she watches my baby and she lives two blocks away and doesn't work uh, outside the home right now. And so you just, and I'm I'm very fortunate in that. Like not everyone has that yeah. chance, right? And I I'm thinking now I had a I had a meeting this week, but we all stood in our campaign offices about ten feet apart and wore masks um, to talk about it and to have the meeting. But you know we really try to stay away, and it is hard. But this is what we got to do it. Especially if we want to get back to being able to congregate and be in public spaces and do things in a communal way. We have to do these uncomfortable and difficult things, even if it's just for a few weeks, so that we can um, get back to the things that we love and enjoy. Right, right. Yeah. Um I, I mean, we'll get there, right? And in fact, we saw some good news this week. The um, Moderna, who's one of the companies working on a vaccine, there's like 19 companies working on vaccines, mm-hmm. but Moderna, um, the results from their initial trials are really positive. And so they are cleared to move to the next trial. So the next trial, it's like the first one had like 30 people and this one has 10,000 people. So this is a much bigger step. Mm-hmm. And the first trial went well. There was like no negative. I mean, people had soreness at the injection site, which is you got stabbed with a needle. Like that's normal. Um, and so even Dr. Fauci said like, there's a good chance we might have positive data by the end of the year, not necessarily a vaccine, but positive data. Um, and so that's a a glimmer of hope, which is all we need. (laughs) Just something that's not terrible news. Yeah. So, then. Um, while we're on the topic of the cultural changes and, and needs, I mean, even schools are trying to figure out and haven't fully solved what returning back to education settings will look like. Yeah. There are some that will do virtual learning models. There are some that will do blended models. Uh, some are pushing for kids to go back to school completely. But if we're asking, if we can't get adults to wear masks regularly and abide by these new cultures, we're now asking kids to adapt a, a new culture and, and trying to understand, you know, how you keep your neighbors. And right. so all of that while trying to maintain classroom decorum and adults maintaining their own safety as well. So, right. um, I definitely, um, my heart goes out to all of the educators and the leadership of educational institutions who have to think through uh, these really big challenges, especially when there's still divides and disproportionate access when it comes to internet service or kids 
who may not even have a computer at their house. So that's yeah. not even an option for some kids to do virtual learning. And so how you adapt at this time and keep kids safe is, is hard. And adults, not even just kids, but how do you keep the people who are working with children and their parents safe during this time? So. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a mess. And I, I think I talked about this last week on the podcast, but, you know, my kids theoretically have the option to go online, except if they do, then they lose their slot at their school because it's like a lottery system. Um, and they, you know, they wear masks. They have, we have, they have some neighbor kids that they play with, but we're not really, I think their parents have been going into work and maybe working in healthcare. And so, you know, talking to their mom and trying to like, well, we want them to play like, cause they want to play, but how can we do it in a way that minimizes risk to everybody, right? Like yeah. you can play Frisbee down the street. That's no big deal. But if you want to play in the same yard, like you got to wear masks. And so they, we've kind of set up rules like that and they get it. I mean, my kids are six and eight and they get it. They don't like it. I'm like, I don't like it either. Like, it's 98 degrees. And I had my mask on today, you know, running it out of the store, but it's just when I'm in there and I come back out and take it off and it's fine. So, all right. Well, speaking of masks, um, the other thing that's going on quite literally as we record is that the city of Oklahoma City is debating whether or not to uh, institute a mask, a mask mandate. That's right. So Tulsa has already said yes. And it was a 7-2 vote. Yeah, which is required, right? So I know Oklahoma City, they have to hit that threshold in order to basically like like an emergency order to like implement it immediately if it's a simple majority it has to be re-voted on next tuesday i think so it sounds about right yeah so oklahoma does not have a statewide mandate we all know that but you mentioned louisiana earlier louisiana arkansas texas kansas and new mexico all of our neighbors except for missouri <laughs> Yeah, And I talked to a friend in Missouri today and I said, who do you think is going to be first? And he said, no, we're both going down with the ship. Like, we're just going to, our states are just going to wait it out and see how many folks die. And I was like, well. Well, in uh, credit to uh, Representative Nichols, because he had a, a tweet about this that said, you know, while it's disappointing that we won't get a statewide mask mandate because Governor Stitt's perspective is, you don't want to pick and choose what freedoms that you um, withhold from people. And so right. he's not comfortable making that mandate, but he said at least he's not Governor Kemp, who is not only restricting municipalities from being able to put mandates in place, but he's suing the mayor of Atlanta for yeah. putting a mask mandate in place. Anyway. So yeah, I, this is really interesting to see a governor to a municipality. Right. I, although not unprecedented, and I expect that would... I was surprised it didn't happen here. I also wonder if part of the reason that's happening is because her name is being floated around as a potential um, VP... Oh, vice presidential candidate? Pick, yeah, for Biden. Yeah. And so I think there's like an additional layer of politics on that. Sure. Sadly. So we'll see. So Tulsa has a, a mandate. Stillwater, Norman... Um, Edmond has basically won. Uh, I know a bunch of other cities are voting on it. Oklahoma City, you know, of course, I ex I kind of expect it'll pass, although it may be pretty close, um, given what I've been following on Twitter today. And um, yesterday they had a really, it was a four and a half hour meeting 
where the Oklahoma City City Council and the mayor met with Oklahoma City County Health Department experts, doctors, and public health professionals to talk through the implications of COVID right now, um, what they need to know about a mask mandate, and anything uh, that they needed to inform their vote for today. So that was an interesting dialogue. And I believe it's still on KOCO's uh, live recording and, and, and several other places that people can, can watch it online. This yeah. is good information. Well, and, and just like a quick scan of Twitter, there's several people are saying that the Oklahoma City uh, City Council meeting is going about like a Parks and Rec episode. Uh, and if you are a fan of Parks and Rec like I am, that is, says all that you need to know about what community <laughs> meetings are like. All right, so let's um, maybe let's pivot back to state level politics and talk about state questions. I'll start with ours. As you may have seen, listeners, we formally withdrew state question 810 from the, not contingent, but withdrew it from the process uh, earlier this week. And I, I, a little narration on the timeline here. So to our knowledge, the Secretary of State had a hold on signature collection across the state. He put that hold on back early in the spring, and it applied to all state questions, everything. And I had not seen or heard anything that it had been lifted until about two weeks ago, I got an email out of the blue from the state and secretary of state that said, congrats, you can start signature collection on July 3rd. And so we called them and said, thanks, but isn't collection told is the word like stopped on a hold. And they said, oh no, we changed that two weeks ago. And we said, oh really? Have you, we haven't seen anything. They're like, did you not get the letter? I'm like, no. And uh, and I say we, it was like me, and I talked to our legal counsel. And then I talked to folks from a few different state questions, and no one got the letter. And it's not on their website. So they emailed it to us, and it's just like a PDF, which is fine. But like, is is notice really posted if it's not available anywhere, right? This is the question. And does it still count for the original time that they allegedly sent it out? Or is right. it based on the time that you got that email? Right. Exactly. These were our questions. So... It, at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter, but it was just shady, right? Like that's not necessarily legal or anything, but just par for the course with this, with our initiative. Um, and so we're like, okay, fine. And so we were theoretically allowed to start collection two weeks ago today, which would have been July 3rd, holiday weekend, height of the pandemic here, not the ideal time to collect signatures. And you know, a lot of folks will ask, well, don't you have enough time to make the ballot? And the answer is no. Even though the election is in November, in order to be on that ballot, you have to have everything done. You have to qualify for the ballot and finish up collection, counting, validation, and any subsequent legal challenges. All of that has to be done by August 24th. So it's 70 days before the election. That's called the ballot counting deadline or the ballot printing deadline, excuse me. So they have to, they need a couple of months to print ballots, right? They're complicated. And so that's roughly a month from now, right? And there's no way for us to collect 200,000 signatures in the midst of a pandemic and get them validated and counted and get through legal challenges in that amount of time. That would be very optimistic, even in the best of times. Yeah. And it is impossible right now. Uh, and also like, 
not safe. So we said, you know, let's kind of go back to the drawing board. We went ahead and let them know so that there wasn't confusion about what's happening out there. So the Secretary of State's office is also still closed. And if you remember, state question 805, the criminal justice thing, had to take them to court in the Supreme Court to get them to open up to accept their signatures, right? And so I guess they accepted them. I saw that they got them counted, and so I they're on to the next step. They will likely be on the ballot this year. But we I had called them several times. They did not answer. I did not get return phone calls. So I sent an email. And I said, we want to withdraw. Do we make an appointment? Do I need to mail it in? Like, what's the protocol Are here? Are you open? What's, what's right, going on? Right, yeah. And, and they said... You know, uh, you know, email it to us and then also mail it and we'll count it. So that was on Tuesday of this week. That was on the 14th. I was like, okay, so I sent it on Tuesday. And then Wednesday or Thursday, I was poking around on the internet and I noticed that state question 807, which is another ballot initiative that had filed around the end of the year. And it's um, an adult use marijuana. So basically marijuana legalization for adults with a bunch of criminal justice components to it. And the one of the main petitioners on this is Ryan Kiesel, who's the executive director of the ACLU of Oklahoma. And so they Ryan filed a motion with the state Supreme Court because they are about to start signature collection. They're not quite there, but they're coming up on it in you know a matter of days. And so they filed a motion, I guess. Uh, I was reading it last night that basically asked the court to put a stay on signature collection because of the pandemic. Like now is not the time back when the secretary of state issued the stay, we only had like 29 cases or something. And now we have like 24,000 or something. And so it's like, yeah. well, if it was not safe, then it's definitely not safe. Definitely, now. Right. There, and there's an interesting component in his, in their motion. It says like, you know, dear court, uh, there's like three things. One, would you, please put a stay on signature collection Two, if you won't, would you allow us to collect electronically, which other States have done? You could use DocuSign or some of these like software that capture everything. Right. Yeah. Um, and States have made There's exceptions. There's ways to do it securely. Yeah. Securely. And like, it's still, it still costs the campaign money. It's still not easy. Right. But like the process is there. Um, so, because you got to get people's email address in the first place. Like that's yeah. tedious. <laughs> and when you need yeah. 200,000 of them, it's a lot of work. So, so that was like, please stop it. If not, you know, could you let us collect electronically? And so that was interesting. And then it said like, to be clear, we're not asking for the secretary of state to stop signature collection because we don't actually believe he has the authority to do that. And I was like, well, but he did like, hang on a second. Like, you know, that's a whole different ballgame, and I didn't even consider that months ago when this whole thing started, because it didn't affect us then, and it doesn't right now. But I was just like, "This is uh, going to be interesting." So it so looks who like would have the authority then the court, right? Okay. And I, the governor could, because I think the way I need to go back and look, but the Secretary of State like issued an executive order, but he doesn't have that authority, right? And right. the governor arguably only had the authority under Chipa. Right. But that is not in effect anymore because that cheapo mm-hmm. allowed him to suspend any statute. Right. Um, but that's not the case right now. Right. And I don't know what the rules are for gubernatorial executive orders normally. 
So, um, very curious. And so, again, That's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, and it's again like we've talked about that about this issue several times in the last few months. So many of this of these things are involving two or three branches of government, like on the same issue, and you. I feel like we're just getting a master class in the separation of powers and understanding the role of the courts and the role of the executive branch and the role of the legislature and how they can work together, you know, to make things happen or to stop one another if necessary. It's all very interesting. And it's coming about because we have a governor who is a novice when it comes to experience in being an elected Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so this is truly an interesting time in American governance, well, Oklahoma governance, to teach us about how our processes really work um, and where the boundaries are, where the line. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, Oklahoma voters uh, love someone who's not a career politician, but also you need we need someone who's like a, knows a little bit, but not too much. Right. Like, <laughs> because otherwise it both ends both extremes of that of that uh continuum cause problems so because we didn't have this much tension in the way that it is in the previous administration when it was republican controlled of all three branches right and, and, so and this is a really fascinating phenomenon yeah because governor fallon had been um a state official she'd been in congress like she'd been around she kind of knew what's up um yeah this is all it's all very fascinating to kind of see how it happens. Yeah. Well, the other, I guess, big news of the week um, at the at the state level is, you know, last week we talked all about the McGirt ruling with Brian Jones. And if you somehow haven't listened to last week's episode, you should really go do it. it I've listened to it twice myself just to, like, catch everything. And I s- still haven't caught everything. But it's really fascinating. Yeah. And it's evolving even more quickly than we anticipated it would right so bailey what happened this week so the creek nation well initially the attorney general released a press release stating that the five tribes which are known as the chickasaw tribe the cherokee nation the creek nation choctaw nation and seminole So the five, they don't like to say civilized anymore, so five tribes um, agreed with the attorney general on what the civil aspect of the McGirt ruling would be for the tribes and how they intersect with the state of Oklahoma and civil jurisdiction. Yeah. So... There are a lot of unanswered questions on what exactly the ruling means. And so even the ruling came out last week. And then quickly we've seen, you know, this coming together and coming to an agreement. So which indicates that there may be some gray areas or loose ends that weren't quite understood even when the agreement was first mentioned. And so today the principal chief of the uh, the Creek Nation put out a statement saying they retract their position on that agreement. Um, 
Andy, I'm sure you can get into more details of, of why specifically, um, but there's definitely concern among the tribe of exactly is in that agreement. Um, and I, I, the main argument is they want to protect their sovereignty and want to challenge anything that would um, take away from their authorities as sovereign nations. Yeah. So whatever was in that agreement challenged that in their perspective. Right. I, I wonder if this has just happened all too fast. Like, I mean, so basically, uh, you know, we got hosed for 100 or 200 years. And then last week, the Supreme Court said, no, no, you've got 19 million acres more than you thought you did. And then for this week, for them to be like, oh, no, which the state can, you know, have control over it. I think at least two of the tribes were like, hang on, can we just sit on this a minute? And I know that there are obviously pressing concerns, but they can maybe, in my mind, I don't know, but they could reach some agreement about those specific concerns without making sweeping decisions that affect things long term, right? And so it is really fascinating to see, you know, I think um, it go from, you know, it's, uh, uh, General Hunter had said, you know, it's, well, the five tribes have agreed on this. And it's like, well, did you really just mean the three tribes? Because two of the five have pulled off now and said, no, no, not us, those other guys. So it's now, it's just the Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Cherokees that are still on it, right? The Seminoles and the Muskogee Creek have pulled off. So... And I was very shocked at how quickly an agreement had yeah. derived because the Supreme Court ruling feels like yesterday. <laughs> I, yeah, and I wonder if, I mean, I assume that Hunter kind of had plans, you know, both ways, right? Like if the state won and if they didn't. And then he like sent it over and was like, how's this? And everyone, if they, you know, if I don't hear back from him by noon, I'm going to assume you're cool with it. And didn't hear back right away and was like, great, everyone's fine. Let's put it, put it out in the press. And so that's, I, I feel like General well, Hunter has, like. yeah, so. I, he's had a good run, but I feel like this was a big, this is a big stumble um, for him. So who knows? Who knows? So well, I and think, this is, and if, if our listeners will go back to the previous episode, this is a very complex issue that will take a lot of um, thinking through from the two parties involved, meaning the sovereign tribal nations and the state of Oklahoma, right? right? And so it's going to take some time to think through all the nuances and details necessary to ensure that the sovereignty of tribal nations are being respected, but also the needs of, of Oklahoma. And so clearly that wasn't met with how swiftly the Muskogee Creek chief said, uh, no, we're, we're retracting. Right. I mean, if you if you would consider, I mean, like you said, this is an agreement between sovereign nations, right? So, let's say that Canada, the U.S., and Mexico had to come up with like a, a unified plan for how to pursue criminal justice cases for you know Canadians who commit crimes in the U.S. and and Americans who commit crimes in Mexico, and you know all this, they're not going to hammer that out over a week, right? Like right. it's it's going to take a while. And so for this just to pop out, seems like, and even the way it was worded was like, did someone roll over? Like what, you know, like, and clearly not, that's not the case. So um, I expect over the weekend, we will see, you know, usually Sunday is like a big ticket day for some of these reporting things. Um, And we'll, uh, we'll see what it says. 
And that reminds me, to go back to, say, question 810, I didn't say this earlier, but for our listeners who are supporters of People Not Politicians and our effort, just to assure you, that fight is not over. Like, we are 100% still going to end gerrymandering in Oklahoma. Uh, it just won't happen in November of 2020, but it's going to happen as soon as we can. I've had a bunch of calls today uh, looking at a bunch of options and... Um, I hope to have a real good plan laid out here in coming weeks for what this looks like. So stay well, tuned. Andy, it's important for our listeners to remember that change is often incremental in this country. And we have a lot of systems and checkpoints in place that ensure that we can make decisions in a thoughtful and intentional way. Yeah. And so there's a lot of the issues that have been ongoing that take a long time to do. So I think Medicaid expansion is a great example. Oklahomans have been pushing for this and advocates have been fighting for it for almost a decade now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it took a while for it to come to fruition and for the right plan to be put in place and all that kind of stuff. And so I think the same applies to the effort to in gerrymandering. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm going to read this statement that Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat uh, issued today about our withdrawal. Um, he is the only one that has issued a statement that I've seen so far, and he's been one of the more outspoken opponents um, to our effort. His statement says, The whole idea that redistricting in Oklahoma is broken is a made-up narrative from out-of-state liberals looking to turn Oklahoma into the next California. Democrats never complained about redistricting until Republicans were in charge. Their complaints now are a totally transparent attempt by liberals and progressives to try and gain a political edge in Oklahoma. The Oklahoma Senate will continue to carry out its redistricting responsibilities in a professional and thorough manner. Now, I, you know, it is somewhat impressive for <laughs> for him to get liberals twice and um, progressives and California all in one press release. That's pretty impressive, you know. I mean, it's it's on message in the in the conservative messaging. So. That's right. He just left out, you know, China socialism, AOC, Pelosi, and <laughs> all the other buzzwords. Now here's here's the deal. We've already put out our statement in response to. Um, I quickly typed it out on my phone because it was his statement's funny. Like it's funny to me um, because we're not California progressives. Like it's a bunch of Oklahoma folks. And he's exactly right. Democrats did not complain about gerrymandering until Republicans were in power because the Democrats were gerrymandering for 100 years. But back then, the Republicans complained. Uh, and now you don't see them saying boo about it. And so this is the whole point. It doesn't matter which party you are. It shouldn't fact, be happening. That's right. It is a. It is not a partisan issue. Right. It is a power issue. And he hit the nail on the head. I left that part out of my statement. I just told him. The, the thing that's ironic is that we withdrew on Tuesday, but they just put the statement out today. And today is Elbridge Jerry's birthday, the guy for whom gerrymandering is named. And so I was like, on his birthday, you're going to celebrate the fact that you get to gerrymander? Like, this is blowing my mind. But Well, and Andy, the pendulum always swings politically. Mm -hmm. So Republicans will not be in charge forever. So eventually there'll be a day where Democrats go back into power. Right. To where now gerrymandering will become an issue again. <laughs> right. So it doesn't and, matter who is in charge. Like, eventually the issue's got to be. Addressed. 
That's right. Yeah. I, I would guarantee that Democrats now are wishing they had fixed this when they were in office. So it's not still a thing. And there will be a day when Republicans wish that they had fixed it. And I'm telling you from someone who has had it with both parties, like it's hard to get the pendulum to swing to the middle and be like, grab it and say, okay, stop. Like, let's just, let's take this one thing off the table for you guys to fight about. Let's let the lines be drawn by a independent commission of regular, you know, businessmen and teachers and veterans and pastors and, you know, moms and dads and regular folks. Let voters draw the lines. You guys run for the offices that we draw and then we'll move on down the road and we can, you know, argue about something else. Anyway, I, that's my soapbox. I'm not going to get off. I'm going to stay on it for the, until we get this passed. So I'll just say that (laughs) now. Um, all right. Well, I, I think the only thing left on our, on our quick list of things to talk about today is the PPP, which is the something protection plan payment. Paycheck protection. Paycheck protection. Program. I'm sorry. Program. Right. Yeah. Paycheck protection program. The government does love a good acronym, I will say. So this was the big program. Not to confuse the PPE. Right. Right. I had to get my mind wrapped around that (laughs) for the longest. That's right. Protection program is different from our our protective equipment to keep it. (laughs) That's it's in some ways we need PPP to buy PPE. Yeah. At least some entities arguably, but yeah, so this is the, one of the big federal programs designed to give money to small businesses to help them weather the storm. Um, and they've had two rounds of it so far. Uh, the first one got gobbled up right away. The second one took a little bit longer um, for people to apply for lots of problems. Um, not everyone got funded. And not everyone got all the money they asked for, either. They were building the plan as they were flying it. And yeah. so this is a prime example of why it takes a long time for decisions to be made in government. Because when we rush into things, we find a lot of loopholes and questions and challenges. Um, and then we end up having a program that's supposed to help uplift businesses, including our small businesses. And then we end up seeing our larger entities that have you know the, the right teams and things like that to be able to go in and gobble up a lot of the fun <laughs> yeah right that's right so it's you know like um you know i'm i'm good friends with the folks that run the tower theater here in oklahoma city you know in the spirit of full disclosure steven tyler from the tower is on the board of let's fix this um and you know they've tweeted a lot about their situation and they've You've been trying to weather the storm, but they had to let employees go. And I, based on the tone, it sounds like they're reaching the end of their capacity here and really, you know, saying like, we need your help from the public. And also like, we need the feds to do some more because this pandemic is not over. Like we're only five months in what happens for the next seven months or however long. Well, Um, Andy, to the point of Howard theater, they're unique because they're a business that relies on crowds. They rely on people to rent their venue or to have concerts and do things in large settings that doesn't allow them to um, bring in revenue in a different way because of the nature of this pandemic. And so it's not like a restaurant that can retool and do carry out or you know, a business that can help spread people out you know, six feet apart. This is a very um, 
unique thing for those that are in the entertainment or tourism industry. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and there's a bunch of others like that, right? There's a, yeah. a lot of folks that are in tight spots. Uh, this is one tiny example. So the data that came out and the frontier has a great story on this. And I will try to link to it in the show notes, but basically the, there was a, a, a data request for who got funded and they released a kind of aggregated data and it was and it the company that uh, received more than 150,000 in loan or grant through. Right. And it doesn't necessarily say like the exact dollar figure they did like in kind of chunks. So people who got, you know, between 150 and 350,000 and who got, you know, 500,000 or whatever. And it's tough because some people got multiple loans. So you have to find them all and add them all up and figure it out somewhat famously uh, OCPA, the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, which is a anti, you know, they often advocate for no taxes or for lower taxes. And they accepted a pretty hefty taxpayer funded, you know, bailout here. Um, that irony is not lost on me. Um, and so the the frontier really kind of dug into that. And um, I think a lot of the people that got funded were not necessarily the entities that people expected, right? Like we saw a lot of churches that got big bailouts um mm -hmm. we saw groups like ocpa they got big bailouts and then we've seen stories from a lot of smaller groups that have said you know they did not get all the money they requested well and then thousands have sadly had to let employees go despite having ppp funds um the sad part is that this is what the program was geared for. There were more than 64,000 businesses in Oklahoma that, according to this article and the front here, uh, that received EPP. And so, um, you know, billions of dollars coming into the state, but we still have to lay people off because the economy still is in this down. And it's yeah. hard for businesses to stay afloat. Yeah, it's what a time to be alive, you know. Bailey, I, let's end on a on a positive note. I saw online that the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma and the the what's the Tulsa Food Bank called? Community Food Bank of Community Food Bank. Yes, um, that they were at the Oklahoma Employment Security Commission, the unemployment big events that they've been hosting in Oklahoma City and Tulsa trying to help folks that are having issues filing for unemployment. I saw that the food banks were out there um, this week. It looks like almost every day and, and maybe some last week to help. What were, what were you guys doing? Yes. So it's been a very unique time for Oklahoma food banks as well, because we've had to figure out how we adjust to be able to maintain our operations because we rely heavily um, on volunteer support, especially in our volunteer center for, um, compiling boxes and and putting the, the food together that we then distribute to uh, families in need across the state. And so uh, many of the staff who work with Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma and Community Food Bank of Eastern Oklahoma um, took time away from what they normally do on a day-to-day -to, -day to help um, at the distributions to help get emergency food boxes to families, but also share information about how they can 
sign up for programs that they may be eligible for, but they, they didn't know. Um, and so I know the regional food bank served about over 2,700 uh, folks, so about 779 families um, over, and that was just in uh, the Oklahoma City. And so um, I was out there on last Thursday from 9 a.m. to 1, um, and I mean, we saw lines of cars coming in um, of people needing that assistance because we have a lot of Oklahomans who have been waiting for months for their unemployment check. And as we talked about in a previous episode of Let's Pod This, OESP doesn't have the resources and the manpower that it needs for a time like this. And so they're doing the best that they can to serve as many Oklahomans as possible because there's a layer of challenges that are keeping people from being able to get the assistance that they need. So we were excited to be able to help play a role in supporting families to make sure that they're not having to decide, do I buy something to eat this week or do I pay it? Mm-hmm. with the little bit of funds that they, they may be saving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. I, that's when I saw that, that you guys were out there, it made a lot of sense. And I, and, um, I, you know, from what I've heard, OESC's, um, looking for partners like that. I know they had even had some private businesses that were like, can we bring donuts or can we help yeah. out somehow? Um, which maybe it's an advertising hit. That's fine. Like people need donuts or food too, right? Like it's a lot of so things. They were but... there all day. There's some people who may have gotten, were number 455 in line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that means they weren't going to be seen until about four o'clock or so. so. Yeah. It's, you know, it's gotten to be where in the mornings I wait for 11 o'clock to see the number of COVID cases we have. And then come five or six o'clock, I look on Twitter to see the number of folks that were served by OESC that day because they, they were averaging, I think, more than 500 people a day in Oklahoma yeah. City. And they've done, um, the same or more in Tulsa and they've and they needed to add a couple more events because yeah. that's how pressed many Oklahoma families are right now because the need is so great with the economy um, still facing a downturn and businesses not being able to maintain employees. Yeah. Well and their you know their system, this is not OSC's fault, but their their computer system is like a DOS based like terminal server deal it is very antiquated. Uh, yeah. People joked it's 40 years old and like I'll be 40 next year and the software is 100% like that old. Yeah. Um, and, and so they I mean, are, just within the past 10 years, technology has changed. Yes. You can only imagine dealing with decade old software. Yeah. And you know, there's a number of staff have been cut year after year. And so I saw that they, um, in a press conference earlier this week or last week, Shelly Zumwalt said that they have 50 new phone agents starting and then they'll have 50 more start in two weeks. So they're trying to like hire up so that they can, cause they're going to need people on an ongoing basis. Right. Cause when you file for unemployment, you have to file subsequent, you know, weeks to keep the, the benefits coming so that they know you didn't get a job in between or whatever. And so they're, I think they're doing the best they can. So hats off to you guys, the food banks, for mm-hmm. helping partner with that. I, I know that other groups have been trying to share resources for folks that are in need. Because, um, you know, these are not bad people. No one asked to lose their job. 
this is the environment we're in. Right. It's all hands on deck. And that, Absolutely. that means everybody, right? So Well, and, and for our listeners, before we end, I'd love to add this call to action because we've reached the end time for, I believe it was the CARES Act that added an additional $600, I believe it's per week, yeah. for unemployment benefits. So that families who are struggling during this time have the ability, because when you get unemployment, it's not your full 100%. And so that additional supplement for the federal government was supposed to help families, but there are Oklahomans who still haven't received anything (laughs) as of yet, including that extra $600. And so it's important for listeners who may be facing unemployment, who are seeing barriers, who see the benefits of families receiving that extra money to contact their member of Congress and and share your story because the narrative is that people are making more on unemployment now and that you know people aren't doing responsible things with their monies when the folks that I saw in line when I was giving out food boxes would tell you completely different. And so lawmakers have to hear what the needs are at this time. So definitely communicate with members of Congress because they will come back to Congress to do business starting Monday. So they'll be there between Monday and at the end of July um, to negotiate and have conversations about what needs to go into the next coronavirus relief bill. And so they need to hear from you to know that families need more support. Yeah. Do you know if Congress is going to have their usual August recess this year? They will. Okay. And then, um, so there's rumors that either they could come to an agreement before August recess or they'll be working through negotiations and then we'll we'll have something in September. But if enough people put pressure, Congress could have something before August. But they will have I'll say this. I think I said this last week. I'll say it again. It's an election year. And if Congress is not voting to give people money, they are stupid, right? Like people need the money. It's you're up for re-election. Uh, or and for... that's how you stimulate the economy. Yes. You need to spend money. And so if the government gives money for people to spend, it goes back into businesses and our economy. It boosts our tax base um, because there's just like the cyclical effect when people are struggling. Yeah. So it, it hurts the economy when people That's right. Um, yeah. You don't want, I mean, we already have really high unemployment. You don't want folks that are unemployed and unable to buy food. Right. Like we, we've been there before this, as a country. We don't want to be there again. Right. And I mean, I get that it sucks, too. Right. Like we from what I saw, like we basically doubled the deficit like last month. Like um, and that's not ideal either. Like I definitely worry about my kids and future generations and all of that. Um, but you can't let people that, suffer. Right yeah. I mean, it's not. Because that's that, not going to fix the deficit either. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. It's not going to get any better if you don't, if you let people starve. That's not happening. So. And one clarification before we wrap up. I said August recess. That is not vacation for members of Congress. That month of August is when members of Congress go back to their legislative districts so that they can be among their constituents and do business back in their home state. And so that is definitely the time to get in front of your member of Congress and message them on their email or their staff or whatever, because they'll be back in Oklahoma for an entire month. So that's mm-hmm. definitely the time to, to get in front of them. Yeah. 
and I will say from my experience with uh, now with Congresswoman Horn, but previously with Congressman Langford, now Senator Langford, um, and um, and Senator Inhofe. Like whenever I've called any of my federal legislators or lawmakers um, offices, I've always called their district office because those are people here, right? There are people who live here that work there. Not saying the D.C. office is bad, knowing that Bailey has worked in the D.C. office for a lawmaker, right? Like, but it's different, right? Like, I think we can agree on that. Um, and and if but they have staff specifically there to help Oklahomans in the district office. That's, that's right. That's their whole job is to to be there to help and support you. That's right. If you're, I'm, I guess I'm saying, if you want to call your member of Congress, but you are nervous that your phone call is going to be dismissed by some Washington insider intern who's the nephew of someone else that's in Congress. Uh, okay. Then call the district office. Cause that is people here who live here, who work here, who go to the same coffee shops as you in the same restaurants. And they have like a more personal vested interest and connection to what's happening here in the state. And never has that been more important than right now. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's end on that note, Bailey. That was great. Thank you, Bailey, for being here and for your uh, illustrious contributions, as always. Well, thank you. Excited to be a part every week. We don't use the word illustrious often enough. I'm going to put that into my repertoire. It's a good word. That's right. Uh, <laughs> listeners, thank you for being here as well. This is, um, we always appreciate it. Please feel free to hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Let's Fix This Okay. You can send us an email, podcast at Let's Fix This Okay. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you know, sometimes we get, it's like a mailbag. We get questions from listeners and we'd love to respond to that. That's fun too. Um, don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Don't forget to wear a mask. It is the single easiest and most effective way that you can help reduce the spread of COVID-19. Keep your friends, neighbors, and grandma healthy. I would personally love for my grandmother to be able to hold my daughter before she dies. Before my grandmother dies. Baby's doing okay. Grandma's almost 90. Let's work together here. Mask up for Mary. That's what I've been saying. Let Mary hold Margot. That's what we want to do. All right. On that note, have a great week. Everybody be safe. Right.